Well, as they just indicated, this month I'm preaching through a series entitled A Christmas Carol, and we are looking at Christmas carols basically on the line of what they just talked about, that as we sing songs and as we go through the Christmas season, we do a whole lot of things to remember and to celebrate Christmas, some of which are not in the Bible. And this is not, I'm not anti-tradition that we don't want to do these things, just want us to take a look and try and uh, be able to discern what's there, what's not, so we have an adequate picture of what Scripture teaches and can build our life and our faith off of that because the danger can be that sometimes we can take traditions and we can take things that aren't really scriptural we can really get wrapped around the axle over doing those things and they're not even you know in in the bible for us to uh, want to celebrate or to be mandated for us so we're just taking a look this year to see uh, as we go through what's right what's wrong uh, from some of our songs and our christmas carols and what is pure speculations because there are things in the bible that it doesn't speak to one way or another and so it's just wide open. There are many ideas and thoughts and interpretations, but it's just speculation because the Bible's really silent on some of those issues. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. When you get there, hold that spot and then flip back to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and mark it as well. We're going to look in both of these places, starting in Luke and then flipping back in a few minutes to Matthew chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a carol, we just sang it, uh, whose six verses were written in 1816 by a priest named Joseph Moore called Silent Night. In German, the language it was written in, it's called Stille Nacht. Now, I know that because when I was in high school, we actually learned uh, that song in German and sang it that way a couple of times. And the only thing I can remember is the title, all right? So no Sprechen Sie Deutsch, so don't come up and ask me anything other than the name of Silent Night in German uh, after service is over. But you see, Moore was on a pilgrimage from his home country of Germany to Austria, and while he was in Austria, he wrote the six verses to Silent Night as a poem. Then on December 24th, 1818, two years later, he took his poem to his musician school teacher friend named Franz Gruber and asked him if he could add a melody and then a guitar accompaniment to it so that they could sing it at midnight mass that night on Christmas Eve. And the rest, as they say, is history. The song that was written as a poem had become a song and would pick up steam and momentum from there and become one of the all-time favorites and very familiar Christmas carols that we know and love and sing today. And there are a number of wonderful truths presented in this carol, but I want to hone in on one this morning that's extremely important because the, the truth that we sing in this song is... Uh, reminds us that the beginning greatly impacts the ending. Now think about this. The beginning greatly impacts the ending. And we know we, we could give a lot of examples of this, uh, but one in my life that stands out very clearly where I understood what goes in on the front end impact what comes out on the back end happened one summer during our summer vacation. I have a younger brother and we awoken or awakened. We got up this summer morning and decided that for breakfast we wanted biscuits and sugar molasses my mom would make this frequently we loved having this and so we determined that was going to be our meal for the day my mom worked days and my dad worked nights and would sleep through the morning and early part of the afternoon so we basically were old enough to fend for ourselves and this was our menu for the day the only problem as we then decided to move from theory into practice was that we had only half observed my mom make this breakfast before. We had never been formally trained in what to do. 
Now, the molasses part was pretty easy. We knew that she took a, a pan of water, put it on the stove, and then just dumped in a bunch of sugar and brought it to a boil. That was easy. But it was this whole biscuit thing. We're like, well, what does mom do to make biscuits? And so we talked and we discussed and we finally determined, came to consensus that there was flour and milk in mom's biscuits. And so we mixed up flour and milk and we got it, you know, to a gooey consistency and we rolled it out on the counter and we cut it into circles and put it on a pan and we baked it up and things were rolling along smoothly. We thought we had this thing licked and we were ready for biscuits and sugar molasses until those things came out of the oven. They were flat, hard as a rock. I mean, we, you, you try to take a knife or a fork and try to, you know, tear it apart and it just crumbled. You know, just this little, this little ball of, of hard uh, white stuff with a little brown on the top. If memory serves me correctly, we ate cereal for breakfast. We drank the molasses like coffee. And then we took those biscuits outside and we chucked them at a tree trunk and they would hit and just explode in little white dust clouds. And we had a few remaining. We had a little batting practice, you know, that day just, to, you know, watching them sail. When mom got home, we told her about our experiment that morning and what had gone on. And she said, oh, she said, you left out one very important ingredient. We're like, oh, yeah, what's that? And she said, lard. That even sounds healthy, doesn't it? Lard. You you need lard in biscuits. Now, to this day, I can't tell you on a molecular level what lard does for biscuits. But I can tell you what it does on the back end. It makes biscuits soft and edible. And so what we learned that day was that what happens at the beginning, what goes into something is as important, if not more important sometimes, as to what comes out in the end. Because the beginning impacts the end. And as we think about the birth of Christ that we've sung about, that we're remembering in this Christmas season, the beginning, what happened in the beginning had a tremendous impact on what would happen in the end. And so this Christmas carol that we sing begins like this, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, sleep in heavenly peace. Now I actually think the melody of that song, the way we sing it, lessens a little bit the doctrinal and theological truth that's contained in the verse. Because we sing, round yon virgin, mother and child. That makes it sound like there's a mother and child round yon virgin, or or, or around a young virgin girl. That that's how we sing it, because of that pause that's there. However, the lyrics actually say there is great calm, there's great serenity and peace around the virgin mother and child. Do you see how hearing that as a lyric has a different connotation and impact than singing it as a song. Round yon virgin mother and child. Because you go, oh, virgin mother, what's that? What are we talking about here? Well, look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to see the introduction to this topic of the virgin mother, which is often called, you may be familiar with the term, virgin birth. Now, truthfully, it should most rightly be called and focused in as the virgin conception, okay? Because the birth of Jesus was about as normal physically as any other birth that's ever taken place. But it's the conception that was supernatural. It was the conception that was out of the ordinary uh, for a child to be conceived in this way. But who am I to rewrite hundreds of years of terminology? So we'll just call it the virgin birth, all right, so that we all know what we're talking about here. But the doctrine is important because just like those biscuits my brother and I made, what went into the conception of this child greatly impacted the results of his death that would come about 
later and at the end of his life. Luke chapter 1 verse 26 says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed. That word means engaged, promised in marriage, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Gabriel goes on then to tell her how this child would fulfill the promises that God had made, that King David would have uh, one of his heir, one of his descendants upon the throne as a king forever. But look at verse 34, because I want you to see that Mary clearly understood the components necessary for natural human reproduction. And she said, wait a second, this can't happen. There's a missing element in this promise you're making to me. She says in verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? In verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of this miraculous supernatural conception, this child would be called holy, righteous, pure. He would be one and the same as God because of the union that would take place in her womb. It's an incredible promise because Mary was going, wait a second, things don't mesh up here in me having a baby uh, because that hasn't taken place in my life yet. And so the angel tells her what was going to transpire. Now, we look at that, and many of us go, well, that's pretty cut and dried. I mean, you see it, the Bible says it, therefore you believe it. But truthfully, there are many people who deny this promise that's here. They deny the the truthfulness of this miracle. They say it's impossible to have human reproduction outside of what occurs in the normal physical realm when all the necessary parts are united. And so they explain away, or they naturalize this miracle by saying... That basically it's this, that Mary and Joseph had a normal human union and that God simply blessed the child uh, that came apart, that came about as part of the natural human reproductive process. Therefore, they deny the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Christ, that it was simply a blessed human union. Well, when you do that, you undermine the nature of Christ, that he is not fully human and fully divine because the conception would be normal human reproduction at that point. And so you're denying this miracle that impacts who Jesus Christ is. And when you deny who he is, then you are casting a shadow of doubt on what he was going to be able to do in his life and in his ministry. This is an important truth that we need to get right out of the gate, friends. And I want you to look back in Matthew chapter 1 to see that this theory doesn't hold water according to what the Bible teaches. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. It's an important statement. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Now, that is as Gabriel had promised, that this was going to take place, that she would conceive and this child would begin growing. So the promise is coming true. It goes on and says, and her husband, Joseph, in verse 19, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, here's the thing. If Joseph and Mary had done what has been proposed in the theory to naturalize and explain the virgin conception of Christ, then he was guilty of the same sin that Mary had committed. And first of all, he wouldn't be a just man. The Bible described him as a just man. He was guilty of this sin that he and Mary would have partaken of. But secondly, he wouldn't have grounds for divorce. Because she would have simply implicated him and said, no, 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 that's not what's happened. This is the situation. Therefore, they would have both suffered the consequences of this sin. But Joseph knew and said, wait a second, something's going on here because I know what hasn't happened with me involved. Yet I can see the outcome and the byproduct of that. Therefore, I'm going to step away from this situation, divorce her quietly, move on with my life and let her move on with her life. But before Joseph could do that, Verse 20 says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah from chapter seven, verse 14, when he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So the angel stopped Joseph and said, no, Joseph, this is a special situation. It's a special circumstance. Uh, what you think in your mind has happened, hasn't happened. This has been brought upon by God. And so it protects the integrity of the virginal conception. Now, the Jews had been waiting for years for their Messiah to come, and they had a number of prophecies to tell them what the Messiah would look like and some of the things that he would do. And I've often wondered why they didn't sometimes take those prophecies and try and do a better job at figuring out who the Messiah was. And one example uh, is this prophecy here from uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 23, about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. And I thought, well, why couldn't they figure that out? That's a pretty easy one to be able to determine. But then I thought about it and recognized that this prophecy was made some 700 years before Christ was born. And being a religious leader, someone in ministry who ministers and cares for people in, in various life situations and stages, I thought, you know, I can see why they didn't maybe investigate this one. Although this is a pretty clear way to identify the Messiah, it's hard for me to fathom as a religious leader walking up to someone's house, knocking on their door, having found out that they're expecting a child, popping my head in and asking the young lady, uh, excuse me, young lady, could you tell me how that baby was conceived? I can see that going wrong in a thousand and one ways, all right? So yeah, it's not as easy as just investigating that out when you think about it. But the thing about these prophecies is when Christ came and when he revealed himself as the Messiah, they were able to go back and check his life and his ministry and his work and his teachings against all of these prophecies. And you know what? Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14 was true. The virgin did conceive and she did bear a child. So investigating these things out isn't that easy. It's kind of like the mom uh, who, whose daughter was in a store and saw a woman who was pregnant. She said, mom, why is that lady's belly so big? 
Well, the mom didn't really want to have this conversation with her daughter right there in the grocery store, thought it was way too, uh, way too young for her daughter to be able to pick it up. And she'd been having an issue with her daughter sucking her thumb. And so in what she thought was a flash of brilliance, she said, honey, that's what happens when little girls grow up to be big, big girls and they don't stop sucking their thumb. And her daughter's eyes got real big and she didn't say anything. And the mom was thrilled that over the course of the next few weeks, this habit slowly began to work its way out of her daughter's life. And she was like, wow, home run. However, she was mortified a couple of months later when her four-year-old daughter passed a lady in the grocery store and said from her cart, I know what you've been doing. So we approach this subject gently in a lot of different ways. But what I want you to understand is that the Bible clearly teaches that everyone in and around the conception of Jesus understood what appeared to have happened in the normal physical human realm. From all appearances, this is what has taken place. But in spite of what their perception or their thought may have been, the conception of Jesus Christ was miraculous. And here's the deal. What is a miracle by definition? It's something amazing. It's an amazing event. It is something that is supernatural. It is above natural. It is beyond the norms of what we experience. God is able to do things that may not work out and, and fit together in our minds, but he's God, so he is able to do these things. So the miraculous in the Christmas story is the conception of Christ, not the birth of Christ. That's why this doctrine is so important. And I gave you a little outline there so you can kind of see the book in and be reminded of how the beginning impacts the end. The conception of Christ was miraculous. It was God-ordained. It was God-initiated. It was God-directed. Jesus' birth from a physical human uh, aspect was a normal human birth. Jesus' life, again, in, norm, in terms of normal human experience, was normal. As people looked at him, Jesus was was hungry. He was tired. The Bible says that Jesus wept. He experienced human emotion. So he lived from what would be some appearances a normal life, even though he did some very supernatural things and the miracles and the signs and the wonders. But then Jesus' death again is miraculous. It was God ordained. It was God initiated. It was God directed. And the impact of Jesus' life did something that was supernatural that all men and all women would be able to come to him, believe in him, and be forgiven of their sins, become God's children, and receive Christ in their lives as their Savior and as their Lord and live with God in eternity. Because he was God in the flesh who came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So the beginning of Christ's life impacted what happened at the end of his life. You know, we don't have time this morning to even really scratch the surface of all that's involved in this doctrine. But I wanted you to have some information and be able to understand and grasp some of the significance of this virgin conception, this virgin birth that we talk about. So I, I printed off an article, some excerpts this week from Wayne Grudem's book called Systematic Theology. They're at our Welcome Center. They're at the doors as you come in. It's a blue two-page um, handout. And I encourage you to get that. Spend 20, 30, 45 minutes looking through, reading that, checking the scripture references so you can see uh, some of the, the truth and the background and the implications of this very important doctrine of our faith. If you're looking for a Christmas gift for a, for a Bible student, I would encourage you to look at Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, next to the Bible, it is one of the most uh, in-depth, one of the best study resources you can get to someone uh, for someone who studies God's Word. 
But this doctrine, as I said earlier, is extremely important. Friends, this is one of the things that we as believers, we will die on this hill battling the the virginal conception and birth of Jesus Christ. Because to deny this doctrine, to deny this truth, first of all, it casts a shadow of doubt on the truthfulness of God's word. If this miracle didn't happen, if God couldn't do this, then what else in the Bible was God not able to do? And so it casts a shadow of doubt on all of scripture to try and deny and explain away this truth. But secondly, and I mentioned it earlier, it changes the very essence of who Jesus Christ is. To deny and try to explain this away or rationalize it in some way, Jesus Christ, as the Bible says, was fully God. He was fully human, united in one person, come to do for us what no mere mortal human being was able to do. If he hadn't been God, he couldn't have done what he came to do and did accomplish during his life and as part of his work on earth. Now, depending on where you get your lyrics in Silent Night, uh, the, the verses you may be familiar with after the first verse may differ a little bit. Uh, the ones that I found in the hymnal where I looked highlighted the theme of light overcoming darkness through this child who was conceived and born of a virgin. Verse two that we sang earlier said, darkness flies All is light. Shepherds hear the angels sing, Alleluia, hail the king. Now, I said already that I'm not preaching uh, this series to to be anti or or critical of Christmas carols. I'm not anti-Christmas carols, Christmas music at all. Uh, Even though after this week, I wonder kind of probably what what our kids' teachers may think about us uh, in our views of, of Christmas and things. One of our kids came in and said, hey, today we did this game where we were naming Christmas songs, and I knew a bunch of them. And they said, and yeah, and then somebody said, joy to the world is a Christmas carol. And I said, my dad said, that's not even a Christmas song. And I went, oh, that's not what I said last week. I just said the lyrics of it aren't, you know, about the, about the Christmas carols. And I was like, I wonder what those teachers at school think about what goes on in our house sometimes. Uh, One day when the theory of evolution starts, there should be some interesting conversations and discussions uh, with our kids then. But, but I'm not trying to, again, go through it and pick these things apart so you go, well, I don't even know if we can trust this at all. What I want you to do, the lesson that I hope you learn from this study through Christmas carols that will go beyond Christmas carols and apply to every area of your life, I hope you learn to do this, to listen to and evaluate the messages you hear in every song you listen to. Let me say that again. I hope you learn to listen to and evaluate the messages you hear in every song that you listen to. I hope a shudder, a shiver just ran down your spine as you thought about that. Because we should take seriously those things that come into our life, the things that we learn and teach from what we see and from what we hear. So every genre of music you listen to, as you listen to those songs, you should stop and say, hmm, what is this song saying? What is it teaching? And if that song doesn't mesh up with what the Bible teaches, you have a decision to make. Are you going to continue listening to that song and the teaching and the lessons and the messages it's sending? Or are you going to say, you know what? This is not helping me in my relationship and my walk with Jesus Christ. So I need to remove this song. I need to get this, this source of influence out of my life. And that's a decision that you have to make on your own for yourself. I'm not there to listen and to hear and to know what goes on. I mean, I can ask the questions. So what does she think about your tractor? 
I don't know. I don't know what she thinks about your tractor. But I can tell you what the Bible says, so let's think about that. You know, you, you pick up and you run with it. Now, some of you are going, man, that's too fanatical. That's too rigid. He's getting all legalistic, and, you know, faith is over here. And this, They don't come together. You know, you're just being too, too fanatical in this stuff. That's taking your faith too far, Curtis. Nobody in, in 2010, almost 2011, lives their life that way. And you're right, maybe that's the case. Maybe I'm being too radical, too fanatical on stuff to say that we should think about, you know, what comes into our life and how it influences our relationship with Christ. Maybe I am being too radical. Or maybe, just maybe, I think the Bible's true. I think Jesus was who the Bible says he was. And maybe I think Jesus was serious when he gave us some messages and when he taught some lessons, when he says things like this in Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We read that and go, well, who can do that? There's no way. That's Matthew 5, 48. That's the last chapter in Matthew chapter five. If you go back and look at the first verse of Matthew chapter five and look at all the lessons up through that, Jesus is giving us examples of how we should live our life perfectly and in submission and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and to God's plan for our life. And as one example, Jesus said, this is what it may look like to be serious about seeking perfection in your relationship with God. Matthew 5, verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now that's what Jesus said. Now, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but I think chucking a few CDs or deleting a few songs off of your iPod or your iTouch seems a little less drastic than plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. Maybe it's just me that that doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, one for one there. But the message that Jesus is saying is you need to be serious about dealing with sin in your life because if you're not serious about getting rid of it or keeping it out of your life, it will move in, it will set up shop, and it will never leave. Jerry Vines one time said, sin will take you further than you want to go and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. That's why Jesus said we need to be serious about dealing with sin in our life. One part of that is getting rid of it. The other part is not allowing it in. So maybe listening to and evaluating and thinking through the lyrics of songs will help us be able to do that. Now, I say that because as we get to this point in Silent Night, it says, Alleluia, hail the king. You don't find that statement in the Christmas story. And we go, well, it's, it's just somewhere else in the Bible. You know, the hallelujah, pray, praise the king. It's not there, but we see it somewhere else in scripture. Well, you wouldn't be right on that either. Here's a great piece of trivia to wow your family and friends and coworkers in the Christmas season. Guess how many times the word hallelujah is in the Bible? I mean, it's a good churchy word, right? I mean, we say it when we agree with somebody in prayer and, and we sing it, we, we exclaim it in worship and we hear good news. We go, hallelujah, woo, you know, that, that's so good. And so it's a familiar term. It's got to have a high word count in the Bible, right? The word hallelujah in the Bible is used four times. 
only four times. I was stunned when I was like, really? I was like, maybe it's in a different word over here in the language or something. Four times, all four references in the book of Revelation chapter 19, almost the very end of the Bible. And in those four references, none of them say, hallelujah, hail the king. But it's okay. Hallelujah is an okay word. You can still say it. All right, and you can exclaim it. Here's what the word hallelujah means. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that means praise. Yah is an abbreviation for the proper name of God, Yahweh. So hallelujah means praise Yahweh. It's an appropriate lyric for this song to be included in Silent Night because as we think about this, this, this child that's entered into the world, we say praise Yahweh, praise God for what has taken place, that light has come into the world to repel darkness. And this theme goes on. Verse 2 said darkness flies. Verse 3 says son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face. Now, I can't remember where, but in one congregation where I served, everybody chuckled singing Silent Night because there was a typo that said radiant beans from thy, like a pinto bean or a green bean. You know, so it was going, radiant beans from his, no, beams as in beams of light that are coming forth there. Uh, but the song adds with the dawn of redeeming grace. Another picture of light that, that in the dawn, the sun begins to rise and, and the darkness moves away and you're able to see. So the dawn of redeeming grace, that God's grace is coming into the world and the darkness is moving away so we can see in the wondrous light of God's love. And then verse four tacks on another source of light from the Christmas story. It says, wondrous star, lend thy light with the angels. Let us sing hallelujah to our King, Christ the Savior is born. You see, light is a common description of God in the Bible. And since Jesus is God, it's also a trait of Jesus. And the descriptions of light surrounding Jesus' birth and becoming a characteristic and trait in his life start with the birth narrative. Luke chapter 2 verse 9 says this, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Did you ever stop to, I mean, we read through those verses, it's very familiar, but stop and it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. So God's glory was light. There was a, a, a brightness, a great uh, light that was shining as the angels came and it was the glory of the Lord announcing the birth of Christ. So you go, okay, so there was a big light on Christmas night. We kind of, we, we thought that, you know, the star and all this kind of stuff. Well, there's more to it than that. The glory of the Lord is described all throughout the Bible, and it is described as a light. This light emanates from the very presence of God. In the Old Testament, it's called the Shekinah glory. That means the presence, that when the presence of God is there, there is light People see it displayed as light. When the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness during the day, there was a, a pillar of cloud. Now, a cloud would be made up of, if you're burning something, would be smoke that, that's there. But at nighttime, that same pillar was displayed as what? A pillar of light that people could see. Moses, when he went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, as God met with him there, the people looked up on top of the mountain. They knew that something was taking place. They described the sight on top of the mountain as a what? A consuming 
fire. There was this light. There was this fire. And when Moses came back off of Mount Sinai, his face was glowing. There was a glow to Moses' face, so much so he had to put a veil on and cover his face because it intimidated. It scared the people. They're like, Moses, man, there's something going on. You've been in the Lord's presence and you're shining. I mean, we see God's glory shining and reflecting through your skin. They were scared to death. They're like, Moses, cover that up. We don't want to be around you, you know. So he put a veil to cover uh, this glow from his skin being in God's presence. And as we go through scripture, uh, we see this in the birth narrative. And some uh, indicate that this light, this glory of the Lord that shone when the angels came is what tipped the wise men, the magi off, that something had taken place. They were astronomers. They were stargazers. And they're out this night and they see this huge light and go, what in the world's that? What's that light that's burning, that, that, that's glowing over there? So they set out and they prepared for their journey to go find out why there was this great light in the heavens. That's why, even though you're not going to find a nativity set probably anywhere in the world that does doesn't include them, the wise men, the magi, weren't at the manger scene. They showed up sometime later, possibly as late as two years after Christ's birth. And that's one of those traditions you just go, what? The wise men aren't the manger. They're right there. I see them, you know. Well, it's to be technically correct, we have two setups. We have the manger over here and we have the little house over here with the wise men around it, all right? So we kind of, it's, it's a tradition that's kind of morphed together. But this light we see is identified there. And not only was light given at Jesus' birth, we see this light displayed uh, as the glory of God in Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and, and it reflected his glory as God. And Matthew described that transfiguration that said, His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. In Acts chapter 9, Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And in chapter 26, he described that encounter by saying this, as a light from heaven that was brighter than the sun. And in Revelation 1 verse 16, in his vision of heaven, John says that Jesus' face was, was like the sun shining in full strength. And in Revelation chapter 21 verse 23, it says the city of God doesn't have the sun or the moon because it says this, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Jesus is the lamp who displays the glory of God as light. And so Silent Night's a great Christmas carol. It affirms this important doctrine of our faith, which lays the foundation uh, for it to be built on, that God became a man and did for us what no mere human being could ever have done. And you know, in this Christmas season, you may have a secret Santa with your family or in the workplace where people are giving you, uh, you know, secret gifts or presents and goodies and things like that. But friends, we can be thankful that God didn't send a secret Savior. He showed his glory. He displayed his glory, which shines like light in the darkness. And then God invites all peoples everywhere to come to that light and receive the gift of salvation that he's given through his son, Jesus Christ. And so today, if you're here and you have never received this light into your life, this presence of Christ to be forgiven of your sins, to be made right with God, then I invite you today to come and receive that gift of salvation. And you do that by admitting to God that you've sinned. You know, sin is part of your nature. Part of Jesus' nature was that he was God. He was holy. The angel said he was going to be holy. We're not because we inherit a sin nature. And left to ourselves, we disobey God. But if you would admit to that sin and turn away from it and believe that Jesus died for you, the Bible says, 
says that today you can be forgiven of your sins. You can become a child of God. And so we invite you as our invitation begins in just a few moments to come. If you would like to place your faith and your trust in Jesus as your savior, so you can become one of God's children. But believers who are here today, I simply ask you this question. Is the light of Jesus shining through you? You see, God's glory shines. And when his glory shines, people are drawn to it. The wise men, the magi were drawn to this light. They wanted to come and see what was happening. And people will be drawn to the glory of God displayed through your life as you live your life in submission and obedience to him. Are others seeing the glory of God shining through their life, through your life? Or are there things that are covering or hindering your light in some way? Are there sins that are keeping your light from shining brightly? Maybe you want to come this morning to the altar and kneel and pray and ask God to forgive you of of those things and, and help rid those things that are keeping your light from shining for him. If there are other decisions that you need to make today, then our altars open, our pastors are available. We would love to talk with you and encourage you as you respond to the Lord's leading. This song says, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. He was Lord at his birth. The Bible goes on to say he will be Lord, he will be ruler for all of eternity after his death occurred. The question which remains for us, which only you can answer today is will he be Lord? Will he be Lord of your life during your life, during your time on earth? He was Lord at birth, he will be Lord for eternity. Will he be Lord of your life as you live your life for him today?